Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Episode 36 of The Bowery Boys, Life in British New York. Hey, it's The Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hello, and welcome to the Bowery Boys. My name is Greg Young. And I'm Tom Myers. Pardon the accents. Um, we were going to do the whole podcast in British accents, but we thought that may be a little unseemly. It might scare some people <laughs> off, it might. And the reason is because this is part two on the Revolutionary War here in New York. Part one last week was, of course, on the invasion of the British into New York and George Washington, the Continental Army, scooting out. And part two, today, we're going to talk about what it was like to live in British New York because the city was occupied for these seven years. What was it like to be an American or a British loyalist who happened to be living inside the city of New York under British rule? And you, I mean, you may think it's it might just be the same with different people who talk funnier. But no, in fact, the city itself, the whole culture changed it, in many ways just the physical makeup changed and a lot of things were going on this was a centerpiece for the british military operations so and the the city of new york before the war was not the same city that was during the war and it wasn't the same city that would be after the war. The war profoundly changed the city. So we hope to give you a little bit of a glimpse. A lot of this is probably information you've never seen. This is literally, we're unveiling some secrets. Some of this is information we've never seen. <laughs> so. of, of, the, of a hidden New York that it's difficult to see as you walk down the street, but just over 200 years ago was the reality of this city. Let's go back to British New York. All right. So before we get back into the story, Greg, mm -hmm. and dive inside the city walls of New York during the Revolutionary War, why don't you take us back to where we were last episode? I will. Just sort of like a, a, a brief recap of, of my lengthy diatribe on the <laughs> British invasion. Because a, a lot happened. A lot, a lot happened in the last episode. Yes. So the U.S. declares its independence in d July of 1776. Right. However, before that, of course, the British forces um, had already been fighting Washington, George Washington, and the Continental Army for many months. George Washington and the Continental Army drove the British out of Boston, so then the British decided to invade New York City. So the British entered New York Harbor, and they made their initial base on Staten Island, mm -hmm. and they then headed to Brooklyn. They landed in Gravesend Bay. 
Bay, and they began what would be referred to as the Battle of Long Island or Battle of Brooklyn. They drove George Washington and his army out of Brooklyn. The army managed to escape to Manhattan, but then Washington decided that they needed to abandon Manhattan entirely. So the British chased after them, landing in Kipps Bay, and then they ended up having one final battle in Harlem, but then Washington and the Continental Army leave. The British have complete control of New York by September of 1776. I should add that just a couple years later in 1778, one of the generals, Henry Clinton, who had gone on to capture Philadelphia, couldn't keep it, so they retreated all of those soldiers back to New York, basically to fortify the city. So it truly is the center of British military operations in the Revolutionary War at this time. But in, in September of 1776, the British pushed the Americans basically out of New York They're City. They're out, yes. But you're saying that more British soldiers would come back and reinforce it wasn't until, the city in It wasn't until 78 where it was. it's truly like all collected into one place. Right. In, in, in the north, yes. But you could say that as of September of 76, the city of New York was in British hands. Correct. That, and that's where, where we're beginning our adventure here. And tied into this, of course, concurrently in 76 is the Great Fire that wiped out a quarter of the city of New York, a quarter of the housing, and caused great devastation on the city because it took out so many of the the homes and the livelihoods. So you have that horrible incident happening at the same time that the city's management and ownership is kind of in flux and a huge population shift. And this is what I find so interesting, and I hadn't really thought about this before Mm -hmm. we started studying this, was that you had these different populations in flux, really, because if you were an American and patriotic, you had to get out of New York before it fell to British authorities. And if you were from the outside, uh, let's say a British loyalist, and all around you, the American army is taking over these lands, you had to get into someplace safe as well. So New York became a safe haven for British loyalists. It's people going in and out of the city in in just rapid pace. Right. And think of just from a property standpoint, if you own a house and the city falls and you take off, well, there's a house. And given that there was a a fire and a housing shortage, it's no big surprise then that people were occupying each other's properties. It's not like you can just lock up the door and your possessions and your property is going to be safe. As you said in 78, with the influx of new soldiers coming into town, they needed to live someplace. All of the officers needed to live someplace. And all of the newly arriving loyalists needed to live someplace, too. So they were just taking over these properties left and right. That is just a snapshot of what it looked like on the streets of New York with people abandoning their properties and assuming other people's properties. Do you know how many residents lived in New York at this time during the war? Did they have like any like firm numbers? Well, it's really hard to say because... I mean, we know, as we said last week, in 1763, so if we rewind a bit, there were about Mm -hmm. 20,000. A little difficult to count, probably. Well, they do know, or they estimate that in 1781, there were about Mm 25,000, if that gives you an idea. About 33,000 by 1783, uh, when other British outposts had fallen and people were coming into the city. So it was somewhere around like the 25 to 35,000 population mark but it would it would also fluctuate with incoming soldiers and outgoing i mean 
they were importing and exporting people as well into and, New York. Right. And we're and just to keep in mind, we're only talking about New York at this time, which was just essentially the financial district, the downtown Manhattan right. area. So the that, city went up to what about where City Hall is? Yeah. Today? So I mean, that's not you know that may not sound like a big number until you realize that that they're all squished down into that area, and they didn't have gigantic high rises. You know, they didn't have so <laughs> <laughs> there were even. Farms. So there's just a ton of people crammed in this little area. Now, of course, with the British taking over control, that meant that there was a new government at City Hall. Mm-hmm. And before the war, the city of New York had a kind of hybrid government, you know, as part appointee uh, from the, the crown yeah. and part elected officials. And they kind of worked together more or less harmoniously. Part of, but, part of a colony. Sure. That makes right. sense. After the war was declared, it really was military rule. Out with democracy of any real sort. And trial by jury went out the window. Right. They just didn't have time for that sort of thing, they said. So, you know, <laughs> they just don't have time well, for this you know, sort of... Yeah, things are more urgent. There's a lot of things worried. They're fighting, you know, they're, they're fighting all these people in the countryside. And... You know, the streets really weren't that safe because there weren't that many police officers and the police weren't really that focused on civil matters. You know, they had their hands full. If you can imagine all the things, I think it's pretty easy for us to imagine today an (laughs) occupying force in a city um, (laughs) in sort of chaotic state. I think so. Where minor theft, you know, and, you know, jaywalking may not be on top of the list of things that they're concerned with. But, and on top of this, you can just imagine all the soldiers coming in and out on ships and where in the world were they living where they were camped out everywhere right I yeah mean, they, they built huts every little place that they could right huts up in fields of course as you ventured up bowery and past what is today's city hall and mm-hmm. went further out into the farmlands like up near stuyvesant's farm oh of course all the way up in the east village today yeah, yeah all the way up there you can imagine fields of soldiers huts now i i want to clarify something because i mean i made it sound being melodramatic that washington has completely abandoned in New York at this time. But this is where, like, cue the espionage music. In fact, there are some members of Washington's army here, but they're as spies, basically. In 1778, Washington assigns his chief intelligence officer, Benjamin Talmadge, 24 years old, to create a group of spies. Benjamin, by the way, was a former classmate of Nathan Hale, Uh who we mentioned last podcast was hanged for being a spy. And the early part of the Revolutionary War. Talmadge huh. created what is called the Culper Ring, and it worked in clandestinely in New York City from 1778 to 1781, working mostly in New York. They would basically steal information. They would become part of New York society. They would uncover information, then report it back via letters and invisible ink. So they'd completely infiltrated. Uh, yes. Did you say invisible ink? Oh, yes. Invisible ink. It's called, they actually called it the sympathetic stain. And it was a white ink that they would use to write letters. And and George Washington had on his end the apparatus, apparatus, a huge network of operatives. One of them was named Abraham Woodhall. Um, He was a 27 year old who could communicate in code. I'm going to show you something here, Tom, that um, I'll put on the blog. This is not prepared. This is a list of how they would (laughs) – encoding, basically. Certain words would be a series of numbers and letters. So they would do these – they would make these letters that would be complete gobbledygook. Um, So if they fell into the wrong hands, no one could really understand what they meant. So if you used 7-Eleven – 
7-11. You were not talking about a convenience store. No, you were back, talking back about General Washington. Yes, yes, he was 7-Eleven. There, there was another man by the name of Robert Townsend. His code name was Culpert Jr. He was a store owner and a journalist for a Loyalist newspaper. He was so undercover that they only un- uncovered his identity in 1939 from handwriting samples. And was the handwriting in special ink? Um, <laughs> I believe it was in normal ink. Oh. <laughs> but you just couldn't read it. So this is what's going on underneath the fabric of British New York at this time. Right. So the normal it, life... Just well, yeah, it sounds... Be- you've made it sound very romantic and yes. really kind of intriguing yeah i mean like it's a, it's a tv like the tv show alias but in fact for the normal person right it most wasn't people so were fun. not spies no. i would say these were difficult times for the majority of the population because people were hungry they were thirsty they were cold and many people were poor and they were looking for places to live can you imagine i mean new york was isolated from the other colonies and there were there were laws on the books to prevent them of course from trading with the mm-hmm. other colonies can you imagine sure today if new york wasn't allowed to trade with the other colonies <laughs> what the I other mean, colonies the, the, other, the other colonies what, where would we get our food there was a major food shortage because new york wasn't growing that much you know they, there were farms but there were not farms for this of number of people right there were just too many people here and there were more people coming in all the time. So they were, they were getting a lot of their food from the motherland, who was shipping over right. great ships full of food, which, of course— But even that was dangerous, having gigantic you know, ships during wartime. Right. You know? That was dangerous. Things would happen to the ships, and food would, of course, spoil on the way, yeah. on the way over. You had soldiers to feed first. I mean, wasn't that their first priority? Right. Almost? Well, I the mean... soldiers and the officers. And then the other people in town really had to kind of fight for themselves. Of course, people with money could get what they needed. But by the end of the war, the cost of meat and flour had shot up so high— I mean, there was a complete imbalance of prices between what people inside New York were paying and what people in the rest of the country were paying. Which sounds now like today. <laughs> sounds kind of <laughs> like shopping at Gristidi's. Are we talking about? Yeah, are we talking about Whole Foods down the block? Um, Don't knock it. There were some charities, so there was some relief mm-hmm. for people. But I think the charities were having a hard time keeping up with the demands. This was the reality. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. 
it sounds like people have it really bad, but Tom, there are people in Manhattan who have it worse than described. Those people. But wait, it only gets better. <laughs> yeah, it's getting more grim as we continue here. Keep in mind this being the military base of New York, this is also where the prisoners come, the captured Americans. This is they're coming here. So immediately. All oh, the, and there's plenty of place to put them. Of course. Well, all the prisons immediately fill up. So then they decide, well, okay, the prisons are filled up. Let's turn our sugar houses into prisons where they, you know, where they store storage places, storage facilities for sugar and such. They turn those into prisons. Then those filled up. So then they had hospital boats and other kind of non-war vessels come in, and they had them as prison ships. And so these ships were basically – there was, a, there was a, eventually a total of 16 of them, and they were right off Wallabout Bay. Do you know what Wallabout Bay yeah, is? where is that? That's actually the area between the Williamsburg and the Manhattan Bridges on the Brooklyn side. It's ah, where the – Like the, the Navy The yard? Brooklyn Navy Yard okay. is essentially where Wallabout Bay is. And so these boats were basically docked about 100 yards off into the water. Tom, this is like – I don't know. It gives me like a sick feeling to think that like there in the, our beautiful New York Harbor, you basically had American prisoners, thousands, kept in absolutely horrible conditions on board these ships. More prisoners died in New York Harbor than total Continental Army soldiers in the entire Revolutionary War. Wow. In fact, some accounts say it says twice as many deaths. An estimate of up to 8,000 to one of the more popular numbers, rounded numbers, was 11,500 men and women died on these prison ships. Women, too? Yes. I mean, just well, anyone who was a, captured. A, anyone who was captured and who was an enemy to the crown. The most notorious of all these ships was called the HMS Jersey, which they also called, not surprisingly, the Hell. It was basically an, uh, an old warship that was stripped of its weaponry. Most soldiers went into these two dark closed compartments, almost 350 men per compartment. At one time, 1,000 men in one of these holds. And believe it or not, there was one hold at the bottom that was even worse place, and it was reserved for the greater enemies, namely the French and Spanish soldiers who had been assisting the rebels. They put them in a special place because they hated them even worse. Wow. So the conditions were awful. Thousands of people kept blown deck without sunlight, food, water. Many of them were injured. Many of them were just young soldiers away from home, totally scared, shoved together for months, ravaged with diseases like smallpox. Just It's so horrible. And then the deaths, they would have at least seven or eight deaths a day, and they would just take the bodies and they would just throw them overboard, or they would bury them in these really shallow graves right up on the shore. Okay, so we have painted a pretty dismal picture here. And believe it or not, this is something that you can kind of experience today. I know that sounds hard. You're like, where can you do that? In Fort Greene, in Fort Greene Park, there is this monument called the Prison Ship Martyrs Monument. It was – a version of, it, of this monument had been there. The current one was dedicated in 1908 and was designed by the Kim Mead and White. Mm-hmm. So under this monument are the remains of over 11,000 soldiers wow. are here in, in this park. And now that you know this story and you walk by it, it's – you know, you see thousands of monuments in New York, whatever. You know, you – to know that story and to realize this, it's really powerful. I recently went there after I read all this story, and it was really kind of haunting. Mm. So all this death and destruction is going on in the harbor. and so- Overlooking a city which is starving and freezing, and some of it is homeless, and it's cold. But, however, for some people... <laughs> for a few lucky ones... 
life was fabulous. There's some, some good in times, fact, yeah. Yeah, and in reading a couple accounts, several of these authors open chapters on occupied New York sort of with the same tableau. They say, imagine pulling in, right, your, your ship and you're walking up mm-hmm. through, through Manhattan and you see all of the fun and the gaiety and the parades <laughs> and the, the theater. There was still a sort of facade of a functional, well, it was a functional city, sure. but a facade of fun and society. British officers, you know, need to be entertained. They need to be dined, you know, and they have money. And other people were still making money because businesses were still functional and trade was still, you know, the sort of cornerstone of the industry mm-hmm. in New York during the time. So leisure activities flourished during the time. There were all manner of societies and clubs and dances and concerts and things like that. So if you were in so-called society, you could go out every night of the week and distract yourself with something else and not really think too much about the war because battles weren't happening. I mean, yes, you had warships full of American prisoners, but you didn't have battles happening you know, not uh, any lo- no, not any doorstep. longer in this area. No, it's true. So one of the things that actually came back to town was theater. And did you know, Greg? <laughs> it comes back to the theater. Comes back to the theater. Did you know that uh, before the war started, that the Americans had actually pulled the plug on theater because they had seen it as too excessive. We didn't need to be, you know, distracted with this sort of frivolity before a war. You know, let's get. Well, you know, they, I can of- understand that there were there some tension. Maybe, you know, seeing a, a folly on a stage might uh, take away from the seriousness of the situation. But, but in fact, the, the British brought it back and, in fact, opened up the stage, if you will, to the British officers. They put an ad in the papers saying, oh, nice. Yes, British officers or soldiers are needed for the first production to be staged in New York, mm-hmm. the production of Tom Thumb. <laughs> Really? Yeah. I didn't uh I didn't know that was a play. <laughs> well, it wasn't just Tom Thumb. I mean, they also produced classics by Moliere and Shakespeare and they, in fact the John Street Theater, mm-hmm. which had been boarded up and closed, was renamed the Theater Royale. <laughs> and it, it gave elaborate productions and was wildly popular. Do you know by the way John Street Theater? Uh, theater and Royale. the Theater Royale. What sits in that place today? It's no. in the Wait, John Street. Um, yeah. Well, it's this diner called the Roxy Food Shop. It's like I a legend, love the Roxy, but it's in that just right there. So it's just funny. It's to a think, total hole hole in the wall little. But it's funny to like think eight to, seat diner to eat like you know some steak and eggs there or whatever, and then but then realize Stay well, away this from is the steak. <laughs> but to, you know, but there was this you know this elaborate theater this like this legendary theater it was one of New York's first. So we there were actually public concerts being given every week at uh, Rubelais Tavern. Rubelais. Rubelais, advertised in the New York Mercury. Isaac Levy was a famous magician who was performing at Rubelais, and there were dances that were held at Rubelais every other week. A lot was going on at Rubelais. <laughs> well, there was a lot, of, a lot of gaiety for certain folks in the city. Right. But unfortunately, all good times must end because... Or fortunately. The, or fortunately. Oh, I guess so. <laughs> um, Are you a loyalist, Greg? No, sorry. <laughs> Oh yes, maybe, maybe. Um, so you know, there's a there's a world going on there. There's a war out there, and well, by the you know by 1783, the British are not doing very well at all. So they're, they've been in New York since 1776. By 1781, though, the war had 
really turned towards the Continental Army, and of course with the help of their international allies, the French and the Dutch and the Spanish, a series of big American successes basically – whittled and weakened the British forces down so that eventually in October of 1781, the British surrendered to Washington and Yorktown. In fact, curiously, Washington was on his way to recapture New York. They were on their way up Hmm. to come and take back New York because they had been emboldened and and they had uh, all these successes and the army was stronger. But they were going to go back and to recapture New York, but then were told of this opportunity that the, that they could capture the British decisively at Yorktown, and they ended up taking it, which was a good decision. That could have actually saved the city. Yes, it did. I mean, it, it could, things could have been, you know, a, a war in New York would have been a disaster. So by 1982, the British informally recognized the U.S. independence. The war is effectively over, but you know, with the, some uh, some skirmishes all the way through 1783. The British, though, are kind of scampishly still staying here in New York. This is the last holdout. You know, even though they have no support overseas, in mid-August of 1783, they get word that they were they have to evacuate. Mm. But you know, it's going to take them a while. Because again, a large number of loyalist refugees so it took them a while to organize and get people out of time yeah because once again here we are at this big population shift it's shifting again i know just the logistics of it, it are like enough headache, it's hard enough to move your apartment across town can you imagine an entire city changing hands <laughs> again so the so the you know the treaty of paris in 1783 is the official end of the war granting land rights between america and britain and recognizing the colonies as a new country so the British stay on for two more months, and then finally, in November of twenty-five, November twenty-five, seventeen eighty-three, they leave. So it's so evacuation. Or that is evacuation day. A day in which people who had been living in other people's homes, if you were evacuating, mm-hmm. were expected to drop off the keys with the city vestry at the city hall, <laughs> and this there was a sort of provisional government set up to help with the handover, make sure that it goes smoothly. But you can imagine people taking off from these homes, dropping off their keys. It's like a rental car. <laughs> rental car <laughs> to return. Go. Yeah. And then, of course, yeah, like a rental car, the real owner's coming back and checking for damage. Because oh, sure, yes. You can imagine the, the anxious patriots coming back. Renovations, you know, things stolen, you know. Yeah, exactly. But they were told, the British were told by their generals to not harm any of the property, Mm -hmm. to treat it respectfully, and to make this transition as clean as possible. So incredibly, there was very little harm done to these occupied homes. That's nice. Well, I mean, you know, they had the the British people needed to live there. They they weren't going to, like, destroy the houses. They're just going to, like, move some furniture around, I guess. Right. (laughs) Sure. So we're talking about a lot of people, 29,000 people. In 1783, 29,000 loyalists Mm -hmm. departed from New York. 29,000 people had to get out before the Patriots came back in. And that's basically the population of the city, virtually. Yes. Yes. Where did they go and how did they get there? Well, the king actually granted many of them land up in Canada. Oh. And so many of them got on board ships. I I would even say most of them got on ships and went up to Nova Scotia. Nova Scotia, okay. Right. 
were given land and also were compensated for their losses because, of course, many people did own property in New York and were you well, know, they leaving made, that yeah. property they, as well. They, they had made new businesses. Those, those few that did were able to. So as we had mentioned in a previous podcast, this evacuation day was a hugely pomp circumstance. You know, They were seen off on boats. There was the, the final shot of the war with right. some angered British soldier shooting – at the Americans who were just waving them off. And of course, how come we not mention the greased pole? <laughs> they had put a Union Jack up on top of a flagpole and they had greased the pole so that like, you couldn't take the flag down. But of course. So there was they, a little tomfoolery and trickery going on. It sounds very. The Americans fraternity. are. Fraternity. Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> fraternity. But the Americans are too motivated. They, they pulled that thing down before they even left the harbor. So. So Washington's marching in on November 25th with his troops reclaiming the city, and all is well? What's I mean, the aftermath? Well, What happened? Know, well, George Washington officially resigns as the head of the Continental Army just a few days later on December 4th, and you know where he does it? He does it... At, at the Roxy? Fr- he doesn't <laughs> does at the Roxy Diner? No. Um, he does it at Francis Tavern, which ah, is on well, not 50- far. 54 Pearl Street, a place you can still go. They have a great museum, great food. There's a bar. You can, you can go there today and emulate his famous words. You know, he, as he lifted his glass of wine and said, with a heart full of love and gratitude, I, na- t- I now take leave of you. I most devoutly wish that your latter days may be as prosperous and happy as your former ones have been glorious and honorable. He was then, at that point, escorted to the wharf, and then he boarded a boat and went back home to Mount Vernon at that moment. But as we know, George Washington would be back. Oh, yes, he would. He'd be back and sworn in. As the first president of the United States. And where would he be sworn in? He would be sworn in downtown Manhattan, New York, being the first headquarters of the American government at Federal Hall on Wall Street. And as a footnote to this podcast, because obviously we could talk about this for a really long time, And if we had a little bit more caffeine, we'd probably be talking about it for well, a little you bit know, longer. I think, yeah, this, is, this shouldn't be a three-part episode. I think we're, no, we're down, with, we're down so. with two parts. So. Yes. Uh, but suffice it to say, we didn't even talk about the newspapers at the time during Loyalist rule. We didn't talk about churches because in the build-up to the war, the Anglicans weren't a bad spot. But during the occupied period, of course, the Anglicans had, under British rule, they were the sort of preferred religion. Mm-hmm. And many other churches were converted to hospitals and into some schools and boarding houses for, for soldiers. So all of that was happening at the same time. And also with the schools, King's College, was its, its main school behind Trinity Church was converted into a hospital. Mm-hmm like so many other things. So the students were basically kicked out, but many of them had run off anyway well, to many, join the war. Many of them, like Alexander Hamilton, were, right. were soldiers anyway. I would, or I would, generals or whatever. The, depleted the student body, needless to say. And many of the instruments and uh, the supplies were actually dropped off at City Hall, and the, the school itself was converted. I think during the war, just like a handful of people actually graduated from, from King's College. <laughs> so as a footnote, Greg, I just wanted mm-hmm. to add that in May, let's see, May 1st of 1784, King's College was officially reopened in its old spot, but by a passage of the New York legislature, was renamed Columbia, Columbia, Univers- Col- Columbia, Columbia College. College. Oh, yes. sorry. 
Yes, Columbia College. And you know, from there on, you can go take an American history class to get the rest of the story <laughs> in terms of Amer- New America. But in terms of New York history, well, you know where to come every week. So, <laughs> oh, Nice wrap-up, Greg. By the way, I have to say that I am indebted to the book New York City During the War for Independence by Bark, B-A-R-C-K. Written in 1939, <laughs> this book was a find at the Midtown Manhattan Library. And of course, what many of you have probably already read, if you want to get some more details on the actual battles of the invasion, of course, you can read David McCullough's 1776 or almost read any book that has come out by by David. No, you know, any of the recent George Washington biographies has some great details that we've pulled from here and called it up. So anyway, so thank you very much for listening. We wanted to say this week to go out and tell all your friends to subscribe. We're totally free. You know, the, reading the blog, BoweryBoysPodcast.com is free, and listening to the podcast on iTunes is free. So if you have any friends who are just have any remote interest in New York City history or just two goofy guys winging it every week, <laughs> please have them subscribe. We would, love, we would love if you spread the word. We, all, we appreciate your listenership so much, and we'd like to have more. So Tom will actually be on holiday That's, for well, the next two – well, it's a work holiday. It's, it's – I'm actually – as many people know, the editor of Eurocheapo.com, which is perhaps how we've found ourselves some sponsorship. <laughs> um, but I will be taking a trip to Berlin and to Brussels and to Bruges, Belgium. Bruges? Bruges, with yes. Co- with Colin Farrell? Oh, Greg. <laughs> Must it all be pop culture? No, no, no. We're adding hotel guides to Brussels and Bruges to the site. We're very excited about it. Uh, so I will be, for the next couple of weeks, hotel hunting. Yes. So, But in terms of the podcast, which we're, we'll still be doing it, I have a couple fun tricks up my sleeve. We have the, the next two weeks of podcasts are going to be very fun. So, But you will miss me. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, guys, thank you for listening. And uh, like I said, next week I'll have a very special podcast, which I can't wait to talk about. I'm chomping at the bit to do it. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.